If you want to go further and add some fun and versatility into your hunting program, check out Can-Am's Defender. Pretty soon I'm headed to my buddy Doug's, and we're going to be running around in Doug's Can-Am because it's like, it's fun. You can get around quietly, easily, all over his property. It's just versatile. Oh, I love it. To find your next Can-Am or to shop online and get serious about backcountry travel, Visit canamoffroad.com. Turn something that you kind of dread driving around into something you love. Visit canamoffroad.com. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right. I'm not going to say what kind of bar this is. Maybe I will. We're sampling a bar. Uh, and a, what do you call it? I mean, well, how would you describe the bar? It's, it's category. Pemmican? No, no, no. I mean, it's like in the category of energy bars or what? Yeah. yeah. Granola bars? Yeah, like super protein. And when we were little kids, bar. it was granola bars. But then people started putting other stuff in them. These here, the number one ingredient is ground beef. Then dried prunes, almonds, sweet potatoes, oats, brown flaxseed, tomato paste, on and on and on, anchovies. Yanni thinks it tastes like uh, dog food. He's a big. There's a hint of dog. It's got a dog food hint. Essence. I first, listen, when I was first sent these, I opened one up and ate it. And I had a box, a box of boxes. I opened one and ate it. It was so bad, I gave the people at the post office two boxes. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know what you guys all do for lunch, but here. And, um, then I went in there later and they're like, man, those things were awful. Um, but now they're kind of grown on me. What I did is I put a bunch in my glove box of the car. My kids won't go near them. But when I'm, I meant to like be like, I'll just feed them to the kids and they start complaining in the car. And then now and then I'll be like, just out of like, you know, driving along and I'll just kind of have a hankering. And they're kind of a little bit growing on me. These things expired last June, 2015 June. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> 
better with age. You're going to want to take a look at that. My friend met a guy and he described him as, uh, or my, my buddy met a guy and his buddy described the guy as being the kind of guy that grows off of you, um, which I always liked. But like you like him at first and slowly stop liking him. But uh, these are the kind of things that grow on you. First thing I want to talk about, Yanni, explain this. What we did. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Did they send you your hat? Yeah, hell yeah. So we were hunting squirrels in Kentucky, and we filled out a form, a squirrel hunting cooperator survey report. Or Yeah, and you like log your squirrel hunting activities. And we sent our squirrel hunting thing in. They sent me a sweet blaze orange squirrel hunting baseball hat. And then they sent a summation of squirrel hunting in Kentucky. So dudes last year hunting in Kentucky would see 2.5 squirrels per hour in August, which slowly dropped to, okay, in August, a dude in Kentucky, your average Kentucky squirrel hunter, who's probably your better squirrel hunters because those are the kind of guys that would turn a log in. I don't think I'm going out. You're a trained biologist. Right. Would you agree that more tuned in dudes are going to turn in a, a voluntary log? Or would you think that even shitty bad hunters are going to turn in a voluntary log? No, I think the guys that are experiencing success. And also who's hunting in August. Probably people are pretty serious about turkey or about so this is squirrels, not, right? So this is probably like a tuned in. So this. Yeah, these are the guys that are dialed in. It's biased or right. tuned in. Probably. So in August, your average Kentuckian. Is seeing 2.5 squirrels per hour and killing about one per hour. By February, here's the weird thing. By February, he's seeing one squirrel, about one squirrel per hour, and killing 0.5 per hour. You know what the moral of that story is, Giannis? Hunt in August? Yep. Um, <laughs> they're seeing a lot more foxes and grays. Ooh. That's good. When I was opening my mail, uh, I, I ripped this thing. I'm not used to like regular old mail anymore. I ripped my thing all to pieces. Anyhow, we're going to talk about caribou. Uh, Land Tawny <laughs> sitting in with us. Land from BHA, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, Ryan Callahan, general guy, hunter, fisher. Works at the hunting apparel company First Light. Giannis Patelis, the man who will not Make me my perch flies. Uh, we work closely together, talk every day on the phone. Still won't do it. And then introduce yourself, Bart. Bart George. Bart George. Yep. I'm a BHA board member for Washington State and a wildlife biologist for the Kalispell Tribe up in northeast Washington. Okay. Explain that to me. They have a wildlife biologist. Right. Well, we have a big natural resource department. Um, so we have about 15 fish biologists. I'm the only wildlife biologist, but... Um, we Why have, so many fish in that? And so you work for the tribe, right? Because uh, they're just fisheries reliant. Not necessarily fisheries reliant, but um, fish where the money's at, right? Is that right? Yeah, I didn't know that for sure. And where do you do? Where, where are you? Where do you do your? Uh, where are you based out of? Northeast Washington, up Ponderay County. It's the most northeast corner of the state, and then also over into North Idaho, up around Priest Lake, mostly. Um, but explain that. Why is it that the money's in the fish? Because I wouldn't necessarily guess that. Um, well, certainly in the Northwest with all the salmon runs and our um, 
the anadromous fish, but then also in our area, it's the adfluvial fish, the bull trout, and stuff like that. Okay, explain anadromous, cotagenous, and effluvial. Well, uh, most of us are familiar with salmon uh, making their run out to the ocean and coming back into freshwater to spawn in their natal streams. That'd be an anadromous fish. Adfluvial fish, like a bull trout that we have in northeast Washington, um, they're also an endangered run of fish, but they use big lakes basically as their ocean so instead of making it all the way out to salt water um they use lake ponderay or one of the big lakes there and so they- anadromous refers to salt water like like in the great lakes the salmon they took pacific salmon and cut them and established them and cut them loose in the great lakes so they treat the lake michigan for instance lake superior lake michigan lake huron they treat it as their ocean mm-hmm. which is freshwater still and they run up to spawn you would say that those are adfluvial fish well, I guess. Maybe I'm talking out of turn, though. I'm a caribou bear. Yeah, no, no, like I, don't mean, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to point you into an area you're not familiar with, but that's what's going on there. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, so, a catagenous fish would be like the American eel. Lives in the river, goes out to the ocean to spawn. I think we covered this before. We certainly might have. I, don't, I can't say it's been on a podcast. Yeah, so, like, an eel spends his life in the river, goes out, d- actually goes down to the sargasso sea um so if you're standing in like new york and you see an eel swim by that he's going to wind up going to the sargasso sea to reproduce um okay that has nothing to do with what you work on nothing um but when you say them so so you explain again where you work um so northeast washington in the selkirk mountains okay into british columbia some into north idaho a lot across a variety of land owners like a lot of a variety of land ownership areas or no for sure um yeah a lot of state land a lot of federal land mostly forest service we don't have a lot of blm or any other management um a lot of private timber company um idaho state land washington state land provincial land in british columbia so what's your like i don't understand what what's your mandate like if you work for you work for a tribal organization. Right. Uh, so the tribe, we're a small reservation. We only have about 5,000 acres on the reservation. So caribou are never going to be on the reservation, but um, they're an important species to the tribe historically. They're in the neighborhood, I guess, 20 miles up the hill. Okay. Um, so the tribe, we don't have land ownership responsibility, but we have some management responsibility through cooperative agreements. I got you. I got you. And then... Uh, lay out for me how you became to be a biologist real quick. Like what, what sort of uh, education path does a fellow take? When we were kids, we all were say, we all would say we're going to be wildlife biologists. Right. Two, two of my brothers did it. Really? But we yeah. just said it because it seemed like a way you get to spend a lot of time outdoors. It is. It's a good job that way. Um, so I got a bachelor's degree back in, I grew up in Iowa, small mm-hmm. town, kind of farm kid. Um, went to Simpson College, got my bachelor's degree there and moved west immediately after college moved to washington state and started working on hydropower projects along the columbia river and then eventually moved up into northeast washington with the tribe um again the rivers in the northwest are definitely where the jobs are at everything's sort of tied to wildlife mitigation or restoration projects that way uh my brother who is a fisheries guy when he first came out west it was hydroelectric stuff on the columbia counting salmon yeah that's pretty common sturgeon issues yeah, then went on to do all kinds of things he didn't know about at the time. Right. When you were growing up in Iowa, there's no way you knew that there were caribou in the lower 48, right? No way. You probably walk around the neighborhood. I bet most people in Seattle wouldn't know there's caribou. I, in I the lived state in of Montana for years. 
Western Montana for years before I would before I had the opportunity to call bullshit on someone who's saying that caribou used to come down into Idaho and Washington. I'm like, no, they did not. You yeah, idiot. They definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> they still do. People, yeah. How is it not known? Growing up in Montana, it was like this Montana history fact. Like, yeah, caribou in Montana. Yeah. That's the only way I knew. In Idaho, now that I live in Idaho, I and I think we need to like reiterate this. Western or Eastern Washington, Idaho, Montana, caribou do exist there. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And I the wolf thing is so giant and nobody knows about caribou. I like it just drives me crazy. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's true. It drives, drives everybody crazy. How okay. This year I'm going to ask you a handful of questions just to, get people, just to get people into what we're doing here, to know what's going on. 100 years ago, no, let's do this. At the Pleistocene-Holocene transition, 10,000 years ago, pre-human contact, how many caribou were running around possibly in what is now the lower 48? What was it like 100 years ago? What's it like right now? I can't, I don't know anything about the Pleistocene era or anything like that during, you know, whatever, pre-contact. A hundred years ago, there were hundreds of caribou south of the border. There were enough that Teddy Roosevelt went on a guided hunt out of Priest Lake. Did he get one? No, but uh, he spent 10 days hiking around the Selkirk Mountains looking for him. So there must have been a handful around to make him think that he could experience some success. And what was their range a hundred years ago? Uh, There are reports all the way down to the St. Joe um, in down in the Coeur d'Alene's, but mostly um, in the South Selkirks and over into the Cabinet Yak area. And were these caribou 100 years ago just spending some of their time in the lower 48, or was there caribou that would be born and die and live their whole lives in Washington, Idaho? Uh, they definitely um, live their lives. There's enough habitat up there to support a herd of caribou for sure throughout the year, throughout their life. Um, Right now, right now, there's still caribou that kind of flirt with the border of both the states and Canada, and they kind of bounce around all three areas. So right now, at this moment, is there a caribou in the lower 48? Uh, we don't know. I guess we only have two collars out right now, but it's possible. I bet there's a caribou within 10 miles of the border, if there's not. And what kind of caribou are we talking about? A mountain caribou. Do you believe in all the distinctions they draw of caribou? Because, because you know how you have in taxonomy, you have your lumpers and your splitters. Sure. There are people who look at animals and they see this amazing uh, tapestry of subspecies and there's like the, you know, the barren ground grizzly, the mountain grizzly, the coastal brown bear, and then you have other people in taxonomy who say it's all one species. They just have, they just look a little bit different depending on where you go, but it's just one species. I recently read that a guy arguing that that all caribou, even the ones in Eurasia, are just a species, and there's no reason to say that it's subspecies. Well, I don't agree with that. Um, <laughs> he, he, he acknowledged that he was going out on a limb. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. I think there's, you know, again, there's lumpers and there's splitters. The caribou that we have in the South Selkirks, um, what makes them unique to other mountain caribou um, is their use of the high elevation country during the winter time. Okay. So they're eating lichens, arboreal lichens out of trees. Is that right? Old man's beard, the stuff you see growing in the trees. Out of trees. Right. To get above the snow. Right. So they're standing on 
whatever, eight foot of snow and they're eating lichens that are out of reach the rest of the year. And they're pretty much the only species that can do that. Um, the only, you know, deer and moose and elk aren't up there. So they have sort of a niche market. Because those animals all leave. Right. Um, and historically, moose and elk didn't really share that habitat anyway. Okay. It's sort of a new thing um, due to habitat change and other things. So the caribou we have, if we took caribou from the north, you know, there's still mountain caribou, whatever, say we get them from Newfoundland or something, and we drop them, uh, they would not know how to use that habitat. There's a possibility we could train them, though, with, um, you know, pen them together and let them sort of co-mingle long enough and do kind of a soft release or something like that. But Got you. augmentations where you just take an animal from a different uh, ecotype and throw them down, it's been a failure. Can you, uh, I'm, I'm going to keep having you stop to explain things that, you, that people might not know what you mean. Can you explain a hot release and, or a hard release and a soft release, which is, this is some fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, um, a hard release is pretty basic. You're taking an animal, you're moving it from one spot, and you're just wishing it luck and kicking it loose into a new area, new habitat type, new whatever mountain range. Um, some species you can do that with pretty well. Bighorn sheep, you can't... You, you can't store bighorn sheep for very long. They'll kill themselves in the pen. So you're pretty much stuck with doing oh, hard release you. with that kind okay. of animal. Um, wolves, they're really easy. They're going to they're gonna make a life for themselves wherever you drop them. Hot or cold? Yeah, you don't have to like sort of do a soft release. You don't have to do anything to temper them into a new piece of habitat. Uh, caribou, it seems that you do. You do got to do soft. What we're going to do, yeah, what we would like to do is build sort of a pen or an enclosure and have a few of our um, resident animals and then bring some other animals out of one of these other herds and put them all together and leave them to calve together in the spring and then, you know, July or so, open the gates and let them kind of come and go at their leisure until they sort of figure out how to use that landscape. And hopefully they'll mother up to that resident group of animals. I was first introduced to those terms uh, when I was researching a book i wrote about buffalo or bison and uh i did a hunt for a, a group of introduced buffalo up on the copper river in alaska and it was a classic like hot release story where they took 13 of them and put them in the back of a truck and cut them loose by a mine and for decades everyone thought they just all died but then the herd turns up thriving 150 miles away oh wow and then later people learned that when you're dealing with those, you build a, you know, an enclosure, let them just be in there and taken care of. And one day you just kind of leave the door open. Right. But because if you kick them out of the back of the truck, they don't know what happened. And, and, they, and just they, start travel, right? <laughs> they just start moving, trying to find where they were coming from or whatever. Right. You know? Yeah. We had um, augmentation animals end up in Montana and end up um, down in Bonner's Ferry in the River Valley in the wintertime where, you know, it's Lots of predators, lions were eating them, um, getting hit by cars, stuff like that. Because they just had no idea how to where they were and what to do. They didn't know how to use that landscape at all. Now, can I assume that? Uh, and we got any, got any questions, Callahan? I just love this topic, so I'm going to be quiet and listen. Because you and so. me have run in to mountain caribou. Yes, uh, a little ways and up, Yanni. a little ways up into BC. Yeah, and Yanni, a number of times. Gorgeous. Oh my god, gorgeous, dude. amazing. Yeah, especially animal. that one we saw last year. Fabio. We got to listen to him rutting and grunting. And oh, wow. Nice. It was yeah, it looked sweet. like Fabio, man. Just like, where was that at? <laughs> it was uh, outside of Prince George. Okay. Yeah, non-migratory. They just live 
they probably have some some amount of migration. But they just like are like glued to these mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you get up like in the North Slope, and you're looking when you hunt caribou, as I like to do, up in the North Slope. You're looking at animals that probably there's a very strong chance they've never been where they are right now. Right. Like you'd be like that might be his first. You think of animals as having such a defined sense of place, but you look at like a caribou like as far as there's a very good chance that that thing has never been in this valley before, just roaming. You know, hundreds of miles. Here, I do have a question. Why only two collars? And is there a ratio of collars to don't answer? Size? Don't answer Cal's question because we haven't established something. Hold it. Okay. We haven't established like what it is. Like what is okay? Lay off me the situation. We used to have them. Why don't we now? Is someone trying to do something about it? Okay, well, let, we can... Then, then we'll do Cal's question. Yeah, right? Actually, they're going to segue pretty nicely. We had six collars. No, no, not, the, not collars. Caribou. Well, that's the same story. Um, so we had six collars out and a, a pretty good cross-section of the population, and we've seen all these sources of mortality sort of pop up now that we have information on the caribou. Um, so we have to use our collar data to sort of extrapolate any information that we get from this herd. I'm trying, we don't I'm know trying to go way, happened, I'm trying right? to go way deeper than that. Okay. Well we've lost animals to um the highway. Highway three cuts right through their middle of their habitat up in British Columbia. So we lose animals on the highway. Um we have significant habitat change. We've got a lot of habitat protected up there. Um a lot of good intact old growth, a lot of good high country for them to use. Um so uh what is the like? Can you give me a sense of the, the the overall picture of caribou and caribou conservation in the lower forty eight? Um, yeah, I can. The we have caribou in the lower forty eight. They're in tough shape, though. Um, there's been significant habitat changes. Although we have lots of places still protected, um, there's like twelve caribou left in that south south kirkard 12 12 um and they all spend some of their they're all they all cross back and forth yeah they're all right along the border um a it, dozen we're down to a dozen yeah we had where's like the next chunk of like their buddies or cousins or the next herd to the north um there are what, 15 sub herds in the in the south selkirks so there are other herds around um but they're not connected anymore there's development in the river bottom stuff like that they just so there's a they're not there's a pop there's a, effectively a population of animals there that is. is not getting that is not breeding with another population of animals there's only 15 left 12 i'm sorry 12 left right um and that population was doing quite well actually in the early 2000s like we were on an increasing trend we added up to like 46 animals in 2000 um eight or nine 40 46 it's a big Why am deal i have such a hard time with numbers today 46 <laughs> yeah that just... so they were increasing 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 they were doing pretty well um and like i said we have we have a lot of habitat protections in place um you know we have road closures we have different things happening to keep caribou safe um the the old growth forest is chopped up a little bit but there are still places for them to find winter food which is a problem for some herds um so kind of what's happened i guess is we have all this habitat change and we have all these fragmented habitats and um as we've logged these things over the last whatever hundred years we've created this huge moose population 
Okay, so we they have, love that second growth stuff. They love it. Yeah, thirty-year-old yeah. cuts are perfect for moose, and we have a lot of those. Um, so as moose have sort of rolled into this country, they've bridged the gap between the river bottoms, which were white-tailed deer, and the caribou uh, elevationally. And it wasn't a big deal until wolf recovery, because now we have this prey species from the river bottoms to the moose up in the mid-elevation to the caribou in the high country. So where before moose were on the landscape, wolves and caribou coexisted because they didn't really run into each other. Now they are encountering each other more often and we're getting um, secondary predation, I guess you'd call it. Because so you got, oh, Go ahead. Whitetails have traditionally lived along the... Right. So and you white had tails. areas where you had whitetails in the riparian zones along right. the rivers. And they would support the wolf population. And wolves knew about and knew about and would hunt them. Right. And you had caribou up in the high country. And then moose came in and now a wolf would find good hunting at all these various elevations and now finds cause to be drifting around up in caribou country. That's right. And the the high moose population as a is a totally a result of the um you know, wildfires and habitat change, I guess to logging um as the moose population has grown pretty high it maintains sort of a i don't want to say an artificially high level of wolves but higher than what would have been here historically they hammer sure. moose pretty hard there uh yeah they support you know moose and elk are certainly supporting the wolf population um so since 2009 we you know we documented our first wolf pack in northeast washington in 2009 and we've seen this precipitous decline in the caribou population from 46 now to 12 over the course of just a few years how uh how contentious is that statement you just made not that contentious you'd be surprised um i think people pretty much recognize that that's the problem they do yeah because you get a lot of people who one wolves can do no harm and you get a lot of people who wolves do all harm well, and you've met them both. Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, we see them both for sure. Um the wolves are the it's it's additional um predation. You know, lions were a big problem in the 90s for predation and when a lion, you know, they're specialists, so they key in on a small subgroup of uh, caribou and they would kill all of them if you let them. Uh we had callers out then and if that started happening, we'd respond with dogs and chase a lion kill it and the caribou were doing all right like you could pinpoint a specific line oh yeah yeah they're definitely specialists i remember reading a story in trapper and predator caller magazine when i was a kid in the 80s and it was about like a lion they called like the hundred thousand dollar lion because they had done a bighorn sheep reintroduction down in arizona and the, the the price tag on the sheep introduction was a hundred thousand and uh some time moved in there and killed every single one of them oh, yeah and they will they they will they will key in on a group and they're pretty effective um yeah they had one and whatever they don't usually name animals or whatever but they called this one mr nasty and it was a big tom and he lived in the high country and he was really tough on the caribou this is a caribou yeah when they got rid of him the herd started coming back up it made a difference in the population over how many years was that lion in there doing it uh, I think it was two or three years. And then, you know, it started off kind of once, one here and there, and then people started putting together, like, this thing's causing a bunch of trouble. And we started accrediting a lot of the kills to that one. Yeah. And, and in that recovery? circumstance, it's so acute, it's kind of hard to say 
no, that's not what's going on. You right. know what I mean? Well, that's an easy, that's an easy fix. That's certainly easier than um, a wolf problem. You know, we have, there's other options. There's a place in Canada up in the Peace River area. They went in and wiped out most of the moose. To help caribou. Yeah. You know, you remove the moose, you remove the primary prey for the wolves, and... Um, How'd that go over? It's wildly unpopular. Like, <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine trying to explain that to people in, you know, British Columbia and North Idaho and Northeast Washington that we're going to kill all the moose to save the caribou? Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't go. No, I, I can't I can imagine. I don't like imagining right. having that conversation. Yeah. My kids uh, were watching one day an animated uh, like cartoon movie. And they call it, I don't know what it's called, they call it Trapper Wolves. And it's like the plot is there's a wolf family. You gather, it's, you know, BC, I gather. And the bad guys are out trying to live trap the wolves and train them out of helicopters. It's like the Bambi story. Yeah, that's- but the bad guys are biologists out trying to trank and relocate wolves to save the caribou. Really? Yeah, I'm not kidding you. And then the wolves leave to get away. So it's like, but the end result is the same because wasn't the whole thing that you didn't want to get relocated, but then they go find a new place to live. Sure, yeah. Which is kind of what was going to happen. It's a very confused plot. Well, it's you a know? children's movie, right? Like, yeah, but it's like at what point? Them. Yeah, but it was just a lot easier when they were just going to go, bad guys going to kill it. It was like the bad <laughs> guys are like oddly southern. Oh, yeah. Hillbillies. Southern hillbilly biologists who are out trying to trank wolves to save caribou, but they were bad. So now bio- Dude, it's the weirdest program. Trapper wolves. Teaching kids that biologists are bad. Like, don't believe those biologists. They're bad. Not only bad, not only bad, but from the South. <laughs> so like, now caribou, do they uh, have a set of uh, twins every year? Are they single calvers? What's single calvers. Single pretty slow. Yeah, reproducers. And, and then, they don't reproduce till they're two and a half, which is, you know, also oh, cost yeah. you a year. Now, so when you guys got rid of Mr. Nasty, the specialist Tom Mountain Lion, that, that next season, did you guys see a couple extra calves? Or Yeah, it was pretty immediate. I mean, really? obviously the lion's taking adult animals and sub-adults. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty immediate difference when you got rid of him. Wow. So a mountain caribou waits till it's two and a half to have a calf. Yeah. And then it'll kick one out every year? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, ideally, our caribou um, have all been in pretty good condition when when they're captured and um, handled. They're in good condition. They're almost always pregnant. So we have, you know, that tells you that their nutritional needs are probably being met. So break down the collar situation. Now, Callahan, ask ask your collar question. All right. You have my permission. So you said uh, before you only have two collars out. Right. is why I mean why only two collars? Is, is there like a prime ratio between how many collars you would have for your herd size? And as part of that, can you explain what you gain by why what collaring means and what what you gain by collaring something? Sure. Um, well, there's a you certainly gain a lot of information by collaring the animals. Um, we figure out how they're using the habitat, where they're crossing the highway, which is a big deal. Um, and then also you're figuring out sources of mortality. So you're putting a GPS locator on them. Yeah, they're GPS collars, and they have VHF during the daylight hours so if we go up in an airplane we can go fly and find them that way um so we get one point a day um electronically on our computer and then also with the vhf we can find them whenever um 
So with the collar data, we're figuring out sources of mortality, which is really important. We're also figuring out calving areas, which is nice to know. Um, like stuff we, you didn't know before, where they were. We had an idea. Um, you know, we know the type of habitat, but when you're down to 12 animals, you start kind of pinpointing like individual animals, right? Yeah, I got you. Um, Instead of thinking about like that herd and that yeah. herd, you're like that animal. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so the reason we're down, we started with six out of, I think we had 17 animals in the herd when we collared. Um, we're down to two collars. One collar is on an animal but dead, so we don't count that. We have. And you shoot it out of, you shoot a dart at it. These are net gunned. Net gunned from a out of a helicopter. From a helicopter, yep. And then you jump down. Yeah, and they mug them, collar them. Uh, take whatever samples we need. And then just cut them loose. Yeah. So what do you steal from them when you mug them? They're taking uh, <laughs> everything we can. We're taking, uh, you know, hair samples, genetic samples, a fecal, um, getting weight, body weight, and all the normal sort of measures. Um, and then also fitting them with ear tags and collars. Um, so once we have these collars out, we can start figuring out source of mortality. And since 2009, like we said, this sort of precipitous decline that coincides almost perfectly with wolf recovery. So we kind of all had an idea, but, um, once we had the, you know, the smoking gun, so to speak with the wolves, um, we were able to move forward with actually a wolf call. And in British Columbia, they're using helicopters to kill wolves in the recovery area. So I want to get to that real bad, but (laughs) I'm going to back up a couple steps. You can go further with Can-Am. I'm telling you, man, I don't care if you're hunting on a farm, hunting on a ranch, hunting out on public, cruising up and down the beach down in Baja, out in the desert in Sonora where we hunt coos deer. Riding in a Can-Am is just funner than riding a vehicle. Everything about it's better. And you can check these two models out, the Defender. This is the undefeatable workhorse from Can-Am. Because like you, it never quits in the face of the toughest work. And it's got HVAC, which keeps you protected from the elements and you can enjoy the perfect temperature when it's freezing cold or real hot. Heavy-duty Rotax engine with a class-leading 69 pound-feet of torque. And check this out. Up to 2,500 pounds towing capacity. The Outlander 500 or 700. This is an all-capable workhorse. Nothing you can't overcome. HD5, HD7 engines that power through any job. Engineered with the strength, features, and build to never let you down. So you're getting reliability and a quality build ready for any job with 125 accessory options. To find your next Can-Am or to shop online, visit canamoffroad.com slash hunting. Hey, you know when you take uh, some time to clean out, uh, let's say like clean out your garage and you're like, man, how was I living like that with that place such a mess? Well, check this out. If you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then you switch over to Mint Mobile and get plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you'll be saying, how was I ever affording to do that way I did it before? It's time to switch, okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and get your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater, and you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com slash meat eater. 
It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. How do you know when it died? We get a mortality signal. If the animal doesn't move for, uh, I think it's 24 hours or maybe 12 hours. So if the collar quits moving, um, it comes through in an email. You know, you get whatever, your smartphone goes off and you know that you have a dead animal and you know um, GPS coordinates. And you hike in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, How far, how far do you, how far, what's the, the kind of extremes... Or is it just easy because of helicopters to go find the thing once you get the mortality signal? We hike in. Um, we don't have the funding to just hop in a helicopter whenever we want. So we take off and walk in. It hasn't been too bad. Most of, We had one that was actually a vehicle strike up on Highway 3, so that was pretty easy, 400 gotcha. yards down the hill. Yeah. Um, we had a, a wolf mortality that was a bit of a hike, um, you know, and sort of that mid to high elevation stuff in the summertime. Um, but a couple miles. I mean, these things, it's it's pretty good backcountry area, but there's still a lot of roads around, a lot of trails. Um, it's pretty accessible. You get the mortality signal, and you always want to go look. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're definitely going to go look. And what do you, when you find the animal, what kind of, how, how obvious is it? Like, it, would it, does it have to be a trained eye, or can, can most anybody walk up and be like, oh, I can tell what happened to this thing? Well, I mean... It doesn't have to be that much training, I guess, but you should have an idea what to look for. But can um, you tell a lion from a wolf? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you would tell a lion from a wolf. The problem up there is the bear population is so high, um, they're almost always scavenged, um, which is a concern. That's a grizzly bear recovery area also. So, you know, you have to kind of go in cautiously. You want to be, there's sort of a, I don't know, the last one we walked in, um, there was wolves in the area, there's bears in the area, there's all this other stuff. So you want to sneak in quietly enough that if there's a wolf eating it, you can kill the wolf. Um, but if there's a bear on it, you want to be making enough noise to spook the thing away and don't get rushed if you, you know, show up 10 yards from it all of a sudden. Um, so what are you looking at when you look at the carcass to tell if it was a predation? Mm-hmm. Well, lion kills are easy. They're generally buried, uh, squirreled away up underneath a tree or something like that. Um, wolf, they tuck it up against a tree and yeah, up against a rock bluff or a tree or whatever root wad, something like that. And they'll be covered with debris. Um, so lion, what do they like to eat off them? Um, they usually go in behind the front shoulder and start, start on the lungs and stuff like that. If it's a 
uh, lactating cow, they'll eat the udder in those areas, but, um, you know, just depends how long it's been there. They're going to eat it until it gets scavenged generally. They like the soft tissue. Yeah. I heard a guy explain that, or his theory on that is that when they get on it, they don't know how long they're going to have it Mm -hmm. before something gets it. Right. And, like, they generally go for that stuff that you can just gobble down in a hurry. Sure. Like lungs, liver, you know, and then work outward from the from the easy stuff work, you know, work outward. Right. Yeah, well, that's probably true. I don't know. I've, I haven't really heard that theory or read anything on it, but it makes sense. It's just, yeah, and it's, it's, also, it's just a guy know, making a guess about it, you know. Sure, you know, liver and stuff like that's pretty high nutritional value. Yeah. Um, With 12 animals, is it insanely hard to net gun these things? Like, do they just know the game inside and out? They've got the game pretty well figured out. Um so we net gunned the herd last when it was, and I wasn't on the aircraft that day. Um, so I was flying a fixed wing, and we mark their location, and then we call the location, and a helicopter comes in and net guns them. Um, it's another reason, you know, you asked about why we put six callers out instead of the whole herd or whatever else. There's um, there's a risk when you capture the animals that you'll kill them, right? There's you you could experience some capture myopathy if you mug this thing and it just doesn't get back to its feet, and then you have some explaining to do. Um, so we kind of figured we'd, we'd do about a third of the herd if we could. And we tried to focus on cows because that's where the best data is going to come from. Why is that? Well, cows are certainly more important to the population. I got you. Um, they're the reproducers, obviously. So, and we're a little, I don't know if you can call the herd bull heavy necessarily when there's only 12 animals, you're not really heavy in anything. You're light. (laughs) Um, but we have probably a disproportionate number of bulls. So we really needed to know more about the cows. Um, how do you tell, I don't mean to keep harping on this, which is of interest to me. How do you tell, uh, so, you know, a lion, how do you tell, uh, a wolf from a bear kill or don't, don't bears hit them hard? Bears don't really hit them hard. Um, bears could be a source of calf mortality, but we don't really know that, you know, if a calf dies, there's no way for us to know, um, unless the cow goes with it. Um, so Bears may or may not kill a few of the calves, but as far as adult, adult mortality, uh, they're not really a primary source. Wolf kills are pretty spectacular. Um, the last wolf kill we went into, it was just like a 30 hours old, maybe. So we got the mort signal. Um, you know, I keep my passport in my work truck, and I was headed towards the border as soon as it came in. and So it was probably actually about 20 hours old. It was fairly recent. Um, and a group of what we think maybe five or six wolves had killed this small bull, and three or four of us went in. Um, the animals were gone, and we found the collar with a pretty good scrap of the hide, maybe six foot of the hide, but um, not much meat attached to that. Found three of the legs and one of the antlers, and the skull was all crushed apart, of course. Um, but we put, I mean, I put all of the caribou remains in my backpack and walked out, and this thing was fresh, like... It didn't. It didn't smell bad. It was like packed them out. It was fresh. Really? So they, when wolves kill it, you know, it's they don't leave a lot. I mean, yeah, they're yeah. eating the ribs. They're eating most of the bones. Wow, man. Um, and okay. the heads crushed. Kind of. I want to. Yeah, when you said of course because they're they're yeah you said of course so they're going after the brain matter and yeah, eyeballs oh, yeah. and yeah yeah they'll chew on the head. I've left. I've come back to where we've killed elk after grizzlies got on what you what we left. And you'll find uh, some balls of hair, mm-hmm. and then the back of the skull. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty tough back they there. It's hard every, to crunch like that. the frame and mat, the area around the hole that your spinal cord goes in. You'll find like a softball size hunk of that. And other than that, they eat the entire face off that thing. Yep, 
Yep. You'll and then, find and yeah. pass bone fragments all over the place. Right. And, you know, you find the rumen content, but the guts are gone. Yep. And you find a big water. It looks like someone emptied out a bag of lawnmower right. clippings, you yep, know, and it's because right. they, the, they ate the stomach but left the... Yep. Um, so if we found, a you know, a more complete carcass, the one we found that was struck on the highway was fed on by wolves and also had a black bear on it when we showed up. <laughs> um, so we're throwing sticks at that thing, trying to scare him away. and So it got hit by a car. Yeah. Wolves came, found it, ate some. A bear came, started eating some more, and how much time had passed? Uh, one day. I mean, this is a, a, a predator-rich environment. <laughs> wow. Um, and so it's like 400 yards off the main highway. Um, you know, we find as much scrap as we can. We only found one pre-mortal bite mark, so it, it probably killed by some, you know, finished off, I guess. So you can analyze the hide and tell what bites that were alive and bites that were not sure yeah you know if there's bruising on a bite mark you generally you can kind of guess that it was alive when it was you know chewed on yeah i heard that because i remember this guy up in alaska a gold miner uh, i think he was a placer miner found a uh a step bison hmm. i think bison latifrons they used to call it i can't remember which one but like a longhorn bison and it had been preyed on by an american lion like a lion species that used to live in the great plains and up into alaska and they could tell by the this thing was so well preserved in the permafrost they could tell where it had been bit before it died really the bruising it, was still it, yeah it hit it on the base of the neck nice yeah because it had like bled there and the rest of the body where it had chewed hadn't bled through hmm. so when you can only pack out a six foot chunk of hide can you, you can tell that you can tell that kind of stuff from it well, we're looking at it in the field and trying to make a decision out there. But yeah, I mean, we're going to pack it out anyway. We get if it's not a collared animal, you know, we found uh, two dead caribou earlier this month. Um, a hiker reported them, and uh, one of the tribal biologists from the Kootenay tribe hiked up and gathered those. What did he kill those? We have no idea. People? No, probably not. Is poaching a big problem with those caribou? It hasn't been in a long time. Most people that hunt up there know, and there's signs and you know educational materials scattered out in the woods um now it wasn't poached it was a really nice bull actually a big set of antlers still laying up there intact um but no saying what happened to it no no idea there's two of them near one another which maybe makes you think there's a predator work in that area but it's anybody's guess and then tell me again the number you had collared at one time we had six at one time and there was how many alive at that time i think there were 17 in the herd then and so the four that died with, have you continuously collared throughout that period or you just had six and now you have two? Right. Yeah. We set, we put six out at one time, uh, like two years ago, one of those collars has died and, uh, three of those caribou have died. So we have two collars still working for us. And then the three that died, one got hit by a car. One got hit by a car and, um, two were wolf mortalities. Okay. And is the risk just too high at this point with the 12 animal group to try to collar anything else um we've talked about collaring some more um we're trying to put together a program we're trying to come up with a plan to you know augment the herd and do some other stuff and we want to do everything kind of at once so we're not handling these animals more than we have to i got you you don't want to be out harassing them all the time right and you know like you asked they they do get smart about the helicopter when they you know animals that have been captured by a helicopter figure that out pretty quickly and they're in tough enough country that um if they really put their mind to it they could get away from a helicopter easily um i got a buddy who is a waterfowl 
researcher and he did a lot of capture netting for birds and he was very uh always very afraid of killing the birds oh yeah and his count he wasn't getting enough birds he wasn't getting data on enough birds and he was telling me how his advisor at the time said if you're not killing birds you're not working hard enough (laughs) (laughs) meaning like get out there and get data but with with the population the size you're talking about it's one thing if you're doing mallards right yeah yeah (laughs) if you kill you know eight percent of the population with one bad shot you've got some explaining yeah but i imagine if you guys if you guys had a mortality would make it'd make the news Uh, probably yeah 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 so is it growing right now or shrinking uh it's pretty steady right now well i mean whatever we were at 15 a few years ago and we're at 12 now so um we have some documented reproduction this year we've got some calves on trail camera so that's good um the only real complete census we get during the winter time like march we'll fly and count the animals again but right now you know the 12 don't stay together they sprinkle out across the landscape in ones and twos oh really yeah so any real census this time of year is impossible what's explain augmentation how that would work well hopefully um it'll be like i said a soft release we'll bring some animals in from one of the british columbia herds that's nearby um hopefully we'll get animals that kind of know how to use that landscape that stay high in the winter time um if we don't we i would still want to augment augment even if we had animals that maybe didn't know that routine we'd hope that we could train them um and are the are the people who who the source heard the people whose jurisdiction that is are they open to the idea of you taking of, of some animals coming from their herds to augment they're not too excited about it. Uh, we've made a formal request. We're working on d- working out details on that kind of stuff. But herds all across that southern part of the Selkirks are in a decline. That's what I can imagine. So someone's like, just because I got a hundred doesn't mean I feel like I got animals to spare. Right. Um, that herd has declined. You know, the main herd of whatever we call this a subherd. The main herd has declined pretty significantly. There's efforts going on. Um, there's maternal penning efforts going on at two different places in Canada where they're capturing cows. Uh, that are pregnant and putting them in a pen and trying to rear them, rear the calves to like three months, four months old before they turn them loose. Because, oh, just to give them an enhanced chance that they'll survive. Because their highest chance of getting killed is early in life. And um, Are those wolves keen in on cows? Uh, up there, well, they've done a pretty serious wolf removal in those areas. Okay. So where they're turning those animals loose, they've done a serious wolf removal, and um, that has helped. Uh, a lion actually killed like four animals at one time up there right after release. So you look at this weird spike in the data and it's like, you got to kind of put an asterisk next to that. That's something that maybe we didn't know we could have avoided, but now we know it's probably not going to happen again. Do you get involved in the predator control? Uh, not really. Um, I have hounds. If, if, a if a lion killed a caribou, I would, be up there with the dogs that hasn't happened since we put the collars out but i would obviously drop what i was doing to get the dogs up there and take care of that so you're a lion hunter right can i come with you lion hunting yeah you had some of my lion last year in missoula oh that was your lion yeah yeah nice, nick man. claire when i joined the little contest that was awesome we didn't even get a participation award <laughs> <laughs> not up to me not up to me so uh i'll talk I like to the look, though. For you. i'll remember that look <laughs> so when um what, so you hunt lions, but you haven't personally gone after lions that were after the caribou. Well, um, like whose job is that? 
nobody has that job necessarily. No. Um, I work for the outfitter up at Priest Lake. Um, that's Selkirk Guiding Outfitting as the area that goes all the way to the Canadian border. Okay. And we target those animals early in the season, but as the snow gets too deep, it ends up being a 30-mile snowmobile ride just to get to the you know any good areas. So early in the season, we try to take out some animals um, that are in the that are potential caribou predators. They're in the caribou recovery zone. Right. But that's completely just your own that's doing. Just hunters, that's like yeah. legal over-the-counter lion yeah. hunting have nothing to do right. with, with uh, government-sanctioned predator control. No, there's none of that. There has been some, you know, there's no female quota up in the panhandle. There's no, um, you know, anybody can buy a tag over-the-counter, that kind of stuff. That You can run hounds in Idaho. You, you can't do that in Washington. Um, in British Columbia, they've, I think, have allowed a hound hunter to take two cats per winter or whatever, but it's just, it's remote. It's backcountry stuff. It's tough to access. Um, you know, in the winter time, you, the cats move down low, the caribou stay up high. You could kill a cat that may or may not ever travel to that high country. So you really don't know if you're getting the right cat or not. And is the wolf control in the, uh, let me get this straight first in the U S. So I know that these animals are on the border moving back and forth, Mm -hmm. but in the u.s portion of the range or in like what we'd call immediately potential range like a place that could very well maybe next month might have a caribou on it is the u.s doing in in a like in a government way are they doing predator control no to assist caribou but canada is canada is and um, And what's the hand what what is the argument against doing it to facilitate the comeback of caribou in the u.s like well, predator protectionists or what is it? Remember, you're dealing with um, wildlife that's managed by the states now. Mm-hmm. So we have these. We have two different jurisdictions there. Actually, three if you count Canada, right? So you've got North Idaho where wolf hunting is liberalized, um, but it's hard. It's thick. It's steep. Um, there's a couple of trappers up there that are finding some success, but there's no government effort. There's no bounty. There's no anything like that. Um, Washington, the wolves are still a protected species. We yep. can't trap them. We can't hunt them. Um, so those wolves on that side of the border are safe. Um, there's no real government um, control effort. There's no, like I said, bounties, anything else. Idaho has done what it could with um, liberalizing the seasons. But, yeah, I don't think we're going to see any kind of government effort to, to kill wolves in the states. It's, it's just too contentious of an issue with big groups. Yeah, but you feel that there is a convincing case to make, or there is a case to make that that would be one of the steps. I'm not saying I advocate or not, Absolutely. but that would be one of the steps towards recovering caribou. It's, it is a very important step, and it's been interesting um, watching people kind of come around as they learn more about this, uh, the caribou situation. And we've had you know conservation groups even not come out with like raving support of the wolf call but like saying we recognize that it has to happen we don't like it but to save this species we know that that's part of the deal yeah um so if we can get groups even to come on with that kind of support that's fine um we're not asking for their money we don't expect them to pay for the the wolf removal but they need to recognize that if we're going to save caribou it's going to have to be sort of a predator free zone for a little while got you now let me ask you a question that'll probably make you uncomfortable maybe not Let's say God came down from outer space and said, you have absolute authority. You are uh, uh, the caribou czar. Okay. And I'm tasking you 
with recovering caribou in the lower 48. If you fail, I will kill every human on earth. What are the things that you would do? And you have three things you can do. Three things, okay. Yep. Well, or, I can, or everyone on yeah. earth dies. Well, they're, the pucks are they're, they're, they're multi-progged. It's like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're multi- it was meant to be a nightmare. <laughs> they're, it's a multi-pronged approach. So we would have to supplement the herd. We absolutely have to bring new animals in or we're going to start seeing genetic drift and issues uh, genetically. What's genetic drift? Uh, it's where you get this small isolated population. They basically become so inbred that their uh, productivity falls. Okay. So you, we would start seeing that. We have to bring animals in. And if I could just snap my fingers and like get animals i'd get all of them and, and the complications there are you want to draw animals who are coming from a similar habitat type and know how to utilize the environment however all of those animals are coming from herds that themselves are in questionable condition right that's right um so i guess if i could let's let's get rid of your situation and just make a more perfect situation like if i had unlimited money and like support from uh, and everyone doesn't have to die you have god on your side you have all the money that's right i've got god on my side but but nobody has to die in this okay so yeah Um, you're just like you have like unlimited you have unlimited funding right so in a perfect world um we could get our hands on a handful of caribou from all of these groups for a couple of years how many you know if we put i think if we put probably 10 a year for a few years out there Oh, did you say that you're essentially willing to borrow them? We would, we would be willing to borrow like them once we recover. Yeah, if we could get, if we'll we could make our herd into a source population, that would be fantastic. I Obviously, that's going to be down the road a little ways, but we were, like I said, we were on a pretty strong upward trajectory. We were going from you know 26 animals to 46 animals in the course of you know half a decade or yeah. something. So we were doing really well. Kentucky, Kentucky, look at their elk population, right? They got elk from other states, and now they're a lead source herd for eastern elk populations. And look, at, isn't the same case with the Nunavak muskox? Yeah, but that's kind of confused because that's yeah. But yes, yes, right. So we've experimental got, population is now turn loose, and then it later becomes a source for for restocking. We've or, got yeah. yeah, we've got bighorn sheep in the same area as the as the caribou that are a source population and have been for years. Okay. Um, so you can, so you can so, borrow, just letting everybody know he can right. borrow the animals and that's give right. them back later. Yeah. It's a high interest loan. We get that. But, <laughs> um, so if we take these animals, we could then do our maternal pen. We'd capture some of our resident animals, um, let them calve with the, and you know, let all the cows calve together, all of our augmentation animals and our resident animals, and give them three or four months in the pen to sort of co-mingle, get to know one another, whatever, and kick them loose. And um, recognizing that the augmentation animals are going to have probably higher mortality. Um, but we'd have collars on all of them. Once you're handling them, you may as well put a collar. Higher mortality so that they don't know the ins and outs. Yeah, yeah you're just going to have that. And that's, we recognize that's probably going to be part of the deal. But um, even if you had you know, 75% mortality, that'd be fantastic. Or 75% survival. That'd be yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so... If we could do that for several years, we could get this trajectory back. And, you know, like I said, the habitat protections are in place. If we continued with the wolf control and, you know, I don't know if we need to ramp up the cougar control or anything else. Bears aren't really a big problem. But, um, you know, keep kind of doing what we're doing. We just need animals. All right. Do you remember, do you remember long ago when they 
were trying to re- they were trying to recover the Florida Panther. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there was a period of time when people thought the Florida Panther was gone, and some lion hunter down no a guy down there kept saying no, there's some still here. This is an interesting story. Uh, a guy down there says no, there's still some around. People are like oh bullshit, they're all gone. He goes and finds some lion hunter from Arizona, has him come out to Florida, and they start pounding lions. And people are like, geez, stop. He goes, just stop telling me there's none here because here's a pile of dead ones. You know, Later, um, they wanted to recover them. They tried all this kind of stuff. And there was a lot of, and some people came up with this idea, like, okay, what is the Florida Panther? Like, sure, we're going to lose the Florida Panther, but let's try to at least save the idea of Panthers in Florida. And what they wanted to do was let's just go get some from the Rocky Mountains. It's like it's the same species. They they are they their offspring are sexually viable, right? But some people are so fixated on saving the Florida panther that they were willing to let panthers in Florida go away if they couldn't save like that population. Why not go get a whole shitload of them from Alaska and just cross your fingers? Like, you're down to 15. 12. God. <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. You're down to 12. Like, how, let's say five years from now, you're out. Not just, I'm not just saying like you, it's like it's your fault. But five years from now, people involved in this effort are still going, please. How about a few caribou over here? Like, what is the argument with being like, okay, let's do plan B. It's not as good, but it's viable that we could go get 200 of the things. Well, like I said, I don't know. If we can train other, you know, like if we could go back to whatever, Newfoundland or someplace and get a bunch of mountain caribou that kind of know the steep landscape that aren't huge migrators. Uh I mean, that would be the big problem, right? You drop a bunch of these animals that do 100 miles. You put some barren ground caribou on, they're just going to split. They're going to cruise someplace. Um, So So then your money's gone. Yeah. Your money's gone in the care who, who knows where. Right. Yeah. Down in Iowa. And you've burned a ton of like <laughs> social capital too, right? You just like I got you. played your hand. Social capital. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to try to do something that's going to work. Um, no, I see. I mean, I knew there was a good answer for it, but it's just something that, you know. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, if we got animals, like I said, there are other mountain caribou that, that drop to lower elevation in the winter. There's a possible possibility that we could sort of change that behavior it's that's a pretty strong instinct for some of them like so we're just going to experience mortality if we do that gotcha. and people just need to recognize that like if we get 50 percent mortality that's still 50 percent survival that's something that's you know additive to the herd yeah so it really seems like the best thing to do is try to get some of these ones from a bit north right we should go up and get some of those ones we know about cal got a horse trailer <laughs> i like it like i'm down <laughs> horse trailer biology instead of bucket biology (laughs) (laughs) you know there there used to be do you remember uh never mind it's such a weird digression um okay what else you still have powers ultimate power that's it it's a short list yeah we i don't we don't need magic we just need some animals like i said with habitat protections are pretty much in place i'd i would do a highway uh, like a wildlife overpass on highway three because the animals like they flirt with that highway all the time there's Actually, I've got a fantastic photo. Somebody emailed me of 
a awesome bull caribou and two cows and a calf and they're standing on the shoulder of the road they're lick they still use salt on the highway yeah, I, I would change that down to get that yeah so they're down there licking and there's the caribou warning sign and then in the background like there's a semi bearing down on the i'm like oh my gosh yeah. this is just a fantastic photo shows all these problems um so yeah if we had a if wildlife had, wildlife over i noticed you mentioned over i was reading a piece about overpasses and underpasses mm-hmm. and um when i've done the underpasses they found a correlation between animals willingness to use it uh with the steepness of the walls oh really they found that when walls got to a certain pitch and they couldn't see they did not want to go through that thing the ones where they pitched the walls out enough where he didn't feel like he was going beneath a ledge they were more willing to use it and they preferred overpasses to underpasses really interesting yeah visibility I mean, like it it's, a, it's a tough sell to be like hey man go into this here box canyon <laughs> right <know>? yeah <laughs> especially for a- on the genetic side of things um like what do you think your timeline is with your you got 12 incredibly valuable caribou right now 15 that's joke <laughs> 12 and like what's your time frame when are you like we need new genetics in this herd by this time or you know else everybody's gonna be the slow cousin we i don't think anybody's really um came up with a definite timeline that way obviously we're trying to just stop the bleeding from this herd right like genetics are because it was 61 it was uh 46 maybe up to 50 i can't remember 46 for sure in 2009 okay um when did you come on i started working on the caribou project uh i don't know half a decade ago five years or so yeah so you've seen a lot of this play out yeah yeah from the basic wolf recovery onward seen like the bad years yeah so you wouldn't in this in playing God, you want more animals. No, he wasn't playing God. Or no, God's giving him the power. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, extension of. Um, but you have uh, you have more critters. You have trying to fix some of like the habitat fragmentation, which is that highway right doing mm-hmm. an overpass, but not any kind of predator control. No, I would still have predator control okay. going. Okay. Yeah. And those are the kind of those are the three big ones, you know. And that, with, that would be aggressive, like is going on up in uh, British Columbia. Yeah, it would be, you know, targeted wolf removal. We're not, we're not anti-wolf, and I don't want to come off that way. Um, we don't mind having wolves on the landscape. That's just part of the deal. Um, we do. We don't want them cohabitating with the caribou. Um, right now, because their population is for so sure. Small. Right now, if we had if we had a thousand caribou, it wouldn't make any difference if a one got picked off every once in a while. This is pretty incidental, yeah. you know. Obviously, wolves aren't making a living on the caribou; they wouldn't last long. Um, but any incidental take when you have just a handful of animals is pretty critical. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we would continue with the predator control. Um, what percent chance is it that they'll all die? I don't know. Likely or not likely. Um, well, at least, you know, from the Because cal- once there's four, they're done, right? I mean, there's a point at which they're done. Uh, there is a point, and I don't think anybody wants to think about that. I don't know what that number would be. Um, the Kalispell tribe, you know, the, my boss, we're not going to quit working on the caribou until they're gone all the way. But, but it won't end if they're gone, though, right? Because then you can still... There's still a recovery area. There's still all this other stuff. But, um, I mean, if we can't get animals to augment the population when there's animals there... Imagine, yeah. imagine trying it to pull changes. those political strings and get, yeah, it'd be impossible. Are you married? I am. Okay. You come home 
and you're like, I don't know what the point is. There's uh, my, I feel like I went, I have the wrong career. Why do I bother? And your wife wants to cheer you up. She says, well, I've been, uh, Stacy's super supportive of the caribou stuff. Uh, she cares about the caribou and like yeah, that. Why? Yeah. Why does anybody care about the caribou? Well, I think because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But I, mean, I was listening to a thing where, uh, uh, Donald Trump was talking about how, uh, they should, they, there's no reason to let water out of the Sacramento river because it's just a stupid three inch fish. And he was kind of like ridiculing the fish. The Delta smelt. He's sure. like teasing the Delta smelt. Sure. I imagine there's a lot of people who kind of tease the caribou, right? Like, but why go through a, all this? There's a petition right now to get them delisted. Like, it's the most imperiled species in the lower 48, and there's a petition in front of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to take them off of the endangered species list and remove the recovery area. Um, Motivated by? That's by the, the snowmobile closure. Gotcha. You know, they've closed winter recreation up there. Um, and a big portion of North Idaho and Northeast Washington and Canada. And, um, those groups are upset and they, whatever, maybe they have something of a point The caribou haven't been in some of that area for a long time. There's maybe an opportunity to have that talk with them, but you know, to pull the animal off the list and remove the recovery area is ridiculous. Yeah. So it's not so much the animal. They just want to remove the recovery area, right? Recovery area restrictions. Sure. Yeah. And there are people that, you know, they see the cost of what this stuff, you know, is going to, and, and, you know, in total, I hate to even guess what it might cost to recover caribou. Like in your perfect world, <laughs> I have yeah. unlimited bun- funding, right? But, but why do people not even know about the caribou? I mean, that's only fifteen, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know. Or you know I don't know. But the, you know, the, there there's so been... much crazy emphasis on the last big reintroduction success story and protecting that big success story to crazy extent, like. It, but here's this 12 animal herd. Yeah, you got 1,800 like, grizzlies in Montana, and people act like they know them all by name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, if they're going to de-list, delist grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, everybody's like, but what if old snaggle scar face gets killed? What happens then? The people, whole Yellowstone economy is going to People don't even burn. know. Here you got where you could actually know all their names, and people don't know or care that they're there. How do they not make the charismatic megafauna list? You, yeah, you just took the words out of my mouth. They're not charismatic enough. I don't know. They're they don't pay the bills, right? There are no conservation groups getting on board with caribou recovery because you're not going to get um, some crazy cat lady in New York City to send you forty bucks to save the caribou. She doesn't care about the She'll caribou. Send you four hundred bucks to save. A, That's right. Save a grizzly. Someone with claws and teeth. She will absolutely care about. Um, so people, maybe they just don't relate to caribou. I don't know. Have you spent much? Have you got to spend much time up in areas up in good caribou country? Yeah. Oh yeah. Dude, it's amazing. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. You know, we've hunted up there where be there for a few days, and every day hundreds come through. Yeah. You can never not see them. I haven't spent time in that caribou country. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> I've also hiked my ass off trying to find one, but I'm saying I did have the experience right. of like what everybody dreams yeah, about, right? Yeah. Where they're just like coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And then you wake up the next day and they're coming and coming and coming and coming. It's not even hunting. It's like yeah. you sort of eventually be like, okay, we should probably go get one, I guess. You know? <laughs> right. It's no, just no, like, it's like observation. The places know? that these caribou live are fantastic in this Elkirk stew. There's, you know, there's lynx, there's wolverine, there's fishers, um, you know, this whole suite of, 
rare and cool species um, that a lot of people don't really realize we have up there. Um, it's a pretty fantastic country, really. When I look at things, I always try to like draw to make definitions, you know, or, or try to struggle to find um, ways to qualify stuff. And one way, when I think of wilderness, right, a way to define it, and it's a very difficult term to deal with, but I always think a, a barometer of wilderness would be that the species are intact, right? That like all the pieces are there. I realize that's tricky because that means you're kind of, that definition's bad, not bad, but that definition isn't great because you're sort of ruling out the possibility of wilderness in the Eastern U.S. Right. And that's the to thing. To some degree. You know, with the delisting, the, the group that wants to, or whatever, if caribou, let's say caribou did go away, the recovery area would exist still. Um, okay. It would take an effort to get that re- recovery area removed because, you know, that's still potentially caribou habitat. Um, so people don't really recognize that. Um, you know, with the wilderness thing, yeah, I'm sort of reticent to to say that the species have to be there, but certainly, like you said, the pieces have to be there. The 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 habitat to meet the life needs of that species should be there. What was the last legally killed caribou by a hunter in the U.S.? I feel like it was in the 20s, wasn't it? No, it was later than that. I, I want to think... It was like 1959 or something, but I could be wrong. A guy legally killed one. Do you know where it was? I don't. I remember reading a thing about it, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah. I know that there was a couple poached in maybe the 90s even. Really? Pretty late, yeah. Poached by dudes who wanted the heads or poached by dudes who were pissed off about caribou and pissed off about Endangered Species Act issues? Well, we don't know. Um, we would we, we caribou. Wouldn't, we wouldn't know either of those cases, right? Because somebody that's pissed off about the caribou is probably not going to poach one and then go down and turn it in yeah these were mis- mistaken identities oh they were these are people that killed a caribou and thought it was something else and they self-reported or whatever yeah dude people shoot llamas thinking they're elk i was just gonna right. bring that up <laughs> and he was a native montana <laughs> i remember going to a fish and game check station and seeing a thing they had a thing up that says this is a llama <laughs> this is a, this is an elk this is a llama this is the dalai llama <laughs> what i thought was funny about that is that, okay he makes the mistake right he makes a mistake it's happened twice which is bad i mean you shouldn't do that anyways but then he brings it to the check station like it's an actual cow elk like yeah packed it out probably gutted it yeah one question i have for you is that like hunters have been you know this this They've been part of this great restoration across the country, right? And so, um, you know, white-tailed deer, elk, antelope, turkeys, they've all come back because of hunters. Right. And so you have this caribou population, which it would take, it's, it sounds like, long, long time before we'd ever have a hunting population of caribou. Yeah, you could probably remove that from your uh, <laughs> yeah. life goals to right. hunt caribou right. more 48. But... It's a species. We've done it before. Like, I just, I guess that question is, so, like, when you talk about, like, the snowmobilers, they don't, like, like them because of their area got shut down. I get that piece. But why aren't hunters more engaged in trying to, like, establish this population? And if, is that part of the whole, like, conversation that you guys are having? Um, well, I don't know that it's really part of the conversation. It's certainly frustrating, though. Um, they're such a cool species in there. Whatever, you know, you talk about what hunters want and different things, and some hunters want caribou back because it's the right thing to do and they mm-hmm. recognize they're probably never going to get the opportunity to hunt one um but you know their their antler to body size ratio is like the highest in the deer family they have huge antlers for their body size they're very you know they're cool animal they have heavier horns than the barren ground animals they're 
they're a beautiful animal. It would be fantastic to hunt one someday mm-hmm. or for our grandkids to hunt one someday. Um, I'm sort of surprised the hunting community hasn't jumped on board more. Um, there was a group the, the in the Northwest Wildlife Council was a big partner in the original augmentation, and they had people helping, and they put up money and stuff like that. So that's kind of the last sort of hunting group that coughed anything up. And did they walk away because the it just wasn't working the way they wanted? Um, no, they walked it. They walked away because the the project was over and it was working. Like I said and they, the caribou were coming back. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, this hasn't been like this slow decline. This has happened quickly, and we have a pretty good idea why. We're not yeah. I'm guilty. This is coming from a guy who's guilty of not having not done diddly squat toward helping caribou, in, you know, in the lower 48. Like I haven't done anything. I'm just learning about it right now. Um, but I do think that people should care about this kind of thing and be involved in it because I don't think it's right to have animals vanish from the face of the earth because of things we've screwed up. And I don't care if you need to draw the inspiration to adhere by that from religion or just as a humanist or wherever it comes from. It's just like, it just seems to me categorically wrong to to eliminate species from Earth. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. It's like just a sin um, in all things. It's like... Uh, whether you feel that we have been given domain of the earth or whether we just happen to need to feel that way, you know, whether we got it from a celestial being or not, uh, I, I, we just can't let things go, let things vanish. I think that the reason it kind of falls under hunters purview is because hunters have done recovery of all of big game animals. And it's like, just because, I think we have to take responsibility for big game animals, even if they're not going to be our game, you know? Right. And uh, I think that the guys who first got involved in recovering bighorn sheep were not, were hardly motivated by the idea of someday I'm going to get to hunt one. I met a lot of guys who worked on the Kentucky elk reintroduction who've given their entire volunteer lives. And what are the odds of them ever drawing a tag? They'll never do it. The guys who know most about those animals and work hardest on behalf of those animals never hunt them. You know, it's not all. It's not always about like, well, can I hunt one? Right. You know, well, I, people don't look at it that way. Um, There's sort of a. It's a weird thing, and it, it's this intrinsic reward or whatever that we get from the recovery effort. But it's the same feeling, probably, that the cat lady in New York gets sending forty bucks to save a wolf. Right. Yeah. She's probably never going to see a wolf. She's never going to hear a wolf howl. But it means something to her that they're there. So, yeah, I, probably I, a sim, similar kind of thing. I argue in favor quite often lately of, of, of delisting grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And the people are often like, oh, yeah, because you want to hunt one. It's like, one, I don't. It, it would take me a long time to explain what I, why I don't, but I don't. I will never. If I could put it in for a tag right now, I wouldn't put it in for it. It's just I'm not interested in that population in that way. Um, two... If I did want to, I would have probably, you know, somewhere well less than 0.25% or a quarter of a percent or so odds of ever drawing the tag. 
particularly as a non-resident. It's going to be a lottery draw if they do do a hunt. They're going to be giving out a handful of tags. They're going to have hundreds of thousands of applicants. You're not going to do it. But people can't help but just make that jump that like you must be in this for something, some dark motivation. Right. It would be a good way to prove them wrong for hunters to get involved in this and look at, okay, it's a depleted game species. It's not like putting turkeys on the ground where in five years you're going to be hunting for the things. It's just you're not, but we should almost, I feel like hunters should, especially people that live around that area, get involved in the same way that we've always gotten involved in recovering wildlife. It's just a long, slow process. Yeah, maybe sometime in 200 years or 100 years is going to be a hunting season for them. Who knows? I tend to doubt it. You can go further with K&M. I'm telling you, man, I don't care if you're hunting on a farm, hunting on a ranch, hunting out on public cruising up and down the beach down in Baja, out in the desert in Sonora where we hunt coos deer. Riding in a can am is just funner than riding a vehicle. Everything about it's better. And you can check these two models out, the Defender. This is the undefeatable workhorse from can am Because like you, it never quits in the face of the toughest work. And it's got HVAC, which keeps you protected from the elements, and you can enjoy the perfect temperature when it's freezing cold or real hot. Heavy-duty Rotax engine. With a class-leading 69 pound-feet of torque. And check this out. Up to 2,500 pounds towing capacity. The Outlander 500 or 700. This is an all-capable workhorse. Nothing you can't overcome. HD5, HD7 engines that power through any job. Engineered with the strength, features, and build to never let you down. So you're getting reliability and a quality build ready for any job with 125 accessory options. To find your next Can-Am or to shop online, visit canamoffroad.com slash hunting. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, meaning like the minute you pull down, it's already comfortable, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers. And with occasional resoling, they're going to last you a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile and lots of help. You come on in, you can grab a coldie, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or other fine leather goods. And stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. You got to go. Visit Tacovas. You go to tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from 
regeneratively raised, grass-fed and finished cattle. Heart and soils. Unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Well, right right now there's a group, and it's pretty much all agency folks putting together a plan, but um, you know, when there's a decision made, there will be an opportunity for people to step forward and, and We've talked about, actually, I've volunteered backcountry hunters and anglers as um, working on the maternal pen. If we ever have a this maternal pen, it's going to be rad. It's going to be way up in the mountains. It's going to be like, you know, 10-acre pen with a wall tent and a cabin that we have to maintain throughout the whole winter. And it's going to be probably a volunteer effort. So, I mean, there are, are going to be opportunities for people to step to the plate. Um, right now, there's not, unless you want to go you know, cougar hunting in North Idaho or Northeast Washington or go wolf hunting or something like that. You can, you know, play that kind of role, but, um, there's not a lot of things for people to do right now. You, you know, no, hopefully people, you know, it gets to be more of a mainstream conversation and people recognize that the caribou are still there and they're people trying to do things and support them, whatever, when the time comes through, you know, sending letters of support and different things like that. But yeah, that's so you need like, you need some agency, to say okay here are some animals if they do that do you get the money we would find the money money there we would we would find the money what would be uh a price per animal that would not be surprising that would be not surprising how cheap or how expensive it was um or doesn't it work that way you know i don't even know i have like I said, saving this species is more important to me probably than the budget would be. I would, I mean, we, do, we would, would find a way be to like, would it be, or could it potentially be actually like, okay, we'll sell them to you or does it not work that way? I don't know. I don't yeah. know if it works that way. Like I said, we're not trading. Dealing, if we're not, yeah, we're not getting these from the United States. This is coming from British Columbia. Um, British Columbia is a strong partner for us. They want the herd to exist um, for a number of reasons. One, it's their southernmost herd. It's the only herd that extends into the United States, and if they want the United States to remain a strong partner, um, they need to keep this oh, herd around. Yeah. And we are a strong partner, and both the tribes are strong partners in the states and everything else. So um, Canada, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like paint Canada in a negative light. They want the herd to be there, um, but they have there's a cost to them to move those animals down yep. with potential failure. There's also a potential reward. And that's what we're trying to sell them. So does, does the decision rest on like some individual's desk or is it more complex than that? I hope it's more complex than that. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know who's making the decision at their, it's a high level in Canada. You know, it's not some field biologist that's going to go do this. It's, it's high level. Yanni interesting stuff got any thoughts on all that can you just real quick explain just because i'm still like lost and like very early on caribou land there's we've got mountain that we've been talking about we've got the barren ground which is pretty much all of alaska are the ones on the kenai are those mountain or barren ground i don't know i don't don't know either but what are the other caribou woodland mountain bear carib then there's the labrador there's one they call that then you have reindeer in eurasia right but in north america we just have it's all it's but it's it's 
they all have the same the same Linnaean name down to the third word. Right. I think they can reproduce too. Yeah. Um, I think. No, they can. Yeah, reindeer and caribou. Are, yeah. I mean, that was one of the deals, right? So there's like five, or there's I think there's five kinds. Woodland, mountain, barren ground, Labrador, and then there's another one. Yeah, so we're dealing with a uh, range for Tarandus, um, woodland, mountain, caribou, whatever. It's sort of, you can use either name to describe the South Selkirks. We go by mountain caribou because I don't know why. We just do. But if somebody called them a woodland caribou, I probably wouldn't jump up and correct them. Okay. Um, they're definitely different than the stuff we have in Alaska or in the Northwest Territories up oh, north. Dude, when I saw those ones that I saw, and we were hunting bears and we ran into some. It was like, you're looking at... They're very different. Yeah. It? Yeah. Now you look at me like, that's not the kind I know about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Badass looking things though. Yeah, they're cool. Uh, they're, uh, you know, heavier, thick, obviously yeah. thick for big giant feet for snowshoeing. Yeah. Heavier antlers. You know, their antlers don't do the wobble when they jog. Yeah, no, that was cool. You got any more things you want to say, Giannis? No. I like that red t-shirt. I'll get uh, you one. Oh, uh, <laughs> Got any uh, concluding thoughts? You kind of talk the whole time, but you can still have a concluding thought. That has you, it can be anything that has nothing to do with this? No, no, this is great. I like, I like, um, you know. Hopefully, more people just become aware that we have those caribou. Like I said, I'm not at. This isn't an ask. This isn't like I'm, you know, broadcasting out trying to get people to send checks or anything. But just letting people know that they're still around, and when the time comes, it might become an ask. Like send a letter of support, do whatever. Yeah. I would ask that they take some of the energy they're spending toward saving recovered things and put it into things that are absolutely not recovered. Oh, yeah. Because you talked really about social capital. We are burning a tremendous amount of social and political capital by arguing over things that by any scientific definition are recovered and ignoring things that are on the are in absolute peril because of a friend of mine pointed out no one has calendars anymore because of instagram worthiness it drives me nuts cal i the, I, the I, two I mean, collars <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking about two things. There's this old movie uh, called The Rare Breed. Did you ever see that? No, I'd like to. Rare Breed, Jimmy Stewart. It's about getting uh, Hereford uh, cattle out out uh, in Texas. Oh. It's supposed to be like the start of Hereford cattle. But they'd no, man, this is right in my alley, though, yeah. Giant ranch in Texas with these wild-ass longhorns that are just, you know, free ranging it out there and then they go round up these things every year and and that's how they run those that beef operation well they the only way this rancher is going to give this uh hereford bull is shot at co-mingling out there is to just do it like everybody else just turn them loose on the range and wish them good luck and we'll see you in the spring Mm -hmm. and that was supposedly like the start of the hereford thing i keep thinking about that like okay hard release here we go (laughs) but the other part of this is the like public knowledge just kills me. Like, it, would it be more beneficial to destroy part of this caribou range by building like a spur road off of Highway Three 
So you could take busloads of tourists in there and be like, look, caribou. <laughs> Only 12 left. All 12. And people would be like, holy shit, I need to get involved. Right. Well, certainly if we had a maternal pen, we'd have some opportunity to, you know, let people peek through the fence or whatever and, or go in and feed them or whatever. Yeah. You know, we'd be looking for volunteers to gather lichens. That's going to be a huge job. Imagine trying to get enough moss to feed 10 caribou for a winter. Yeah, that might create awareness yeah. and generate some press. Get some Cer- school kids out yeah. there collecting moss. Certainly yeah. locally, which is important. They eat that moss. They love it. Oh, yeah. I knew a gal that worked at the large animal research station there in Fairbanks, and she was working on the caribou, and she did that. They went up to the North Slope and collected with like a group of 20 people, just filled up, like, I forget, they were recycled not lawns, like grain sacks or maybe, yeah. and just stuffed them full of lichen. And she said, I think for most of the week, they didn't get it every day. And she said when that sack would come out, though, I mean, because the pen's pretty big, but those suckers would just, just run. Really? Yeah. But you know the stuff he's talking about, the, like that grows up on the trees. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't, they weren't collecting that. But yeah, that Do they eat that one that looks kind of seaweedy too? Yeah, the green stuff. Nasty looking. Looks almost yeah. like something you'd find under the water. Right. They like that? Yeah, they'll eat that. Yeah. Um, There's plenty of. What is that? I've always wondered what that species is, man. Like, I don't know. I used to take a hiking into the hot springs and you'd always like see so much of that stuff. I should look that up. You know, if you cut a tree down, though, the deer and elk, they eat that stuff out of the tops of trees. My buddy used to be a surveyor in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And uh, he says you'd be out there cutting a line through all that bog land, you know? You know, just the sound of the chainsaw. So he said you'd cut your lines, set everything up, and you'd have to hurry up to shoot the lines because deer would come toward the chainsaw sound, and you couldn't even look down your thing. Like when you're shooting the lines, you couldn't even look down your thing because it'd be all deer. You have to run down, scaring all the deer away, and then try to shoot the line real quick because they just know the chainsaw noise. Really? Yeah. And were they, so are they eating the? They, yeah, they knew someone was knocking down cedars or whatever, and they would just yeah, it's like a siren song, man. It's like deer, <laughs> the sound of a deer feeder motor in Texas. Yeah, chainsaw in northern, <laughs> chainsaw in northern Michigan, man. It's good. You to know, know. you were talking about the, la- the last of the breed, the rare breed, the rare breed. Yep. Uh, my brother was worked at works at this research facility where they were doing a um, they're they're working on a project or were working on a project where they're trying to breed wagyu. Mm-hmm. And limousine cattle. Mm-hmm. So limousine, the carcass attribute would be like, it's this huge animal, okay, but very lean. And Wagyu is a small squat animal with very high fat content. So they're trying to do this thing. You breed the two and make a giant high fat content. Like to make Wagyu, which is where you get Kobe beef, to get Wagyu from a large animal. And uh, they would, every year, the people that are working on this project would do these uh t-bone tests where they'd be in a lab and they got all these little grill tables set up and they grill t-bones to a certain temperature on a electric grill and then do a thing called a warner bruntler shear force test where they just punch three holes in the t-bone and see how tender it is and just discard them <laughs> and you'd go to my brother's house when they were doing that and his it was like bars of gold stacked up in his <laughs> fridge man he just bring all those freaking t-bones home with a hole punch in it. <laughs> three holes. Every, so whenever you open one up, it would have like three holes in it. You could drop an egg in each one. Dude, just, no, it punches about a quarter inch hole, man. Dude, he always called them his T-bone testers. <laughs> that was like an annual feed. You think you like the way grizzlies will hammer elk gut piles in the fall? It was like his like it was like his time of year, man, is when they were doing the the the, the 
Warner Bruntler Shear Force test on Wagyu beef. Land, concluding thoughts? <laughs> um, I'm with Cal. Like, I, I just, this is such a cool thing that's out there. And I think, you know, getting to have Bart on this podcast and letting people know that there's actual caribou in the lower 48 is a pretty awesome thing. And I think the more people know about it, the more they're going to want to do something about it when we have the opportunity. So um, I think that's just, I mean, when I think about all the species that have been recovered in the United States and how, like, you know, I haven't been able to be a part of much of that, right? Like, this is still something, like, this and bison are still something we can do, which is yeah. pretty darn cool. They get a lot of attention. I mean, yeah. I wrote a whole damn book about them. <laughs> you there did. You and I think, and, and that's, and that's, it's, you know, it's, that's a much longer probably conversation about that recovery. But with this population, as small as it is, as unique it is, is and it's only in a localized area in the lower 48 that can even live, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's cool. Last thing I would say is that uh, um, one of the things that makes BHA, even though that we are a small organization, is we have badasses uh, that are members and badasses that are in our leadership. And Bart, uh, hopefully, uh, not hopefully, but did get that across today, is he spends a ton of time out in the woods. Um, and, and so he knows the place really well and he knows what it needs. And so um, that's who we are as an organization. I think that's pretty darn cool. Here's my concluding thought. Uh, it's it's two-parter. Three-parter. One, I agree with you. Two, I'm just getting old enough where I'm just starting to get like, I just don't always have a lot of faith in people. Curmudgeon. I, I, growing up, there was a friend of mine who told me, uh, a Vietnam veteran, he said, Stevie, people never change. They say they're gonna, but they never change. And I just, some things I'm like, as much as I'd like to say, I just, it's just hard for me to picture. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. It's just, I, I, it's just hard for me to picture um, a situation this dire that I wasn't that aware of till today. I mean, I knew a little bit about it. It's just hard for me to picture like uh, turning it around. What kind of p- person would you want to change? I don't understand what you mean. That it would be that it would be something that all of a sudden it would like get momentum. But how would it get this bad? And still no one knows about it. At what point did someone go, hey, these dodos are getting mighty thin? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Was it one? If there's one caribou, would people come, would like, uh, you know, would NPR go out and do a story? 12's not good enough for you? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like okay. the people are going to all of a sudden be like, damn, we need to fix this problem. It's like if if that's going to happen, it seems like it's going to have to happen pretty quick. Right. That's <laughs> frustrating. Yeah. If it was polar bears or if it was wolves or grizzly bears or something like charismatic, like you said earlier. You need to hire, not you, people need to hire whatever PR agency it is. Or maybe there isn't one, but someone's to start one that can sell the American public on um, loving a critter. They did it very effectively with wolves. It was done very effectively with grizzly bears, very effectively with fur seals, which are the farthest thing from endangered. They need to go and be like, let's take some of that attention away and put it in a couple places where it really is needed right now. Talk to the people at Coors. I look at my <laughs> refrigerator and I'm like, okay, 12 beers. Right. 11 beers. I'm like, oh, I better go get more. Dude, yeah. Dude, a beer can with a, a beer can with a mountain caribou on it. Mountain's already there. They're 
blue caribou. It's All cold enough to drink. Stick, right? stick a caribou. <laughs> on, caribou man. or blue? Bring the sexy back to caribou, right? Come yeah. on, Pete, step up if you're listening. Was that yeah, part one of up. my thing? I, I had a three-part. Oh, right? part one was I agree with Land. Part two is I'm like, come on. Yeah. How did I not like like I like try to stay hip to this stuff? I didn't know. So I'm a little bit mad at myself. Part three, this lion hunting we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I am pretty. I, I've I've chased a couple of lions down in dry ground, not on the snow. Um, I'd be real eager to go out and look around, chase lion tracks in the snow with you. Come on over. What's your what time of year you like to hit it? December fifteenth, we start in Idaho. How long does it run? Um, we can kill cats until about Valentine's Day, mid February, and then we chase until March thirty first. Then we go to Montana until April fifteenth, usually. But what part? What part, uh, what part of the state do you hunt? In Idaho? You're the hunting the Panhandle. Panhandle, yeah. Yeah. Up north. And you're hunting lions that are mostly eating whitetails. Mostly whitetails. Um, some elk killers also. You know, elk fat and lion. Yeah, yeah. The big ones, you know, they get big when they start eating elk. Is that right? Well, yeah, it's so much food. They don't have to hunt as hard. They can stay put and just sit around and eat and get big. Yeah. But you, it, you eat a lot, lot of lion meat? Yeah. 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 I've had I a like number it. of them. It's good. A lot of the lions in that, in kind of the caribou potential area, though? Well, we like I said, early in the season, we try to target those lions up in the caribou recovery area, and then you just get snowed out, and it just gets too hard to get up there. Um, you know, you're talking about 8, 10 feet of snow up there, and the lions find little pockets of habitat that they can live in. They don't they don't travel much. It's hard to cut tracks. It's, oh, I see. Because they're just kind of holed up somewhere. Yeah. But early in the season, we catch a lot of big toms coming out of that high country. They kind of migrate seasonally. Yeah, they move around. The, yeah. You know, not all of them, but... What's a big tom? Um... You know, a 150-pound cat is a big cat. Yeah. Anything over that is really a nice one. Everybody talks about 175-pound, 200-pound lions. I was talking to a biologist in Oregon, and uh, throughout his career, he'd worked up uh, 300s. I can't remember, 360-some lions. That's a side. Like, I don't care how hard you hunt lions, it's hard to get mm-hmm. to handle 360 of them, okay? Because he ran the predator program in Oregon. He worked up 360-some and weighed them. Okay, worked them up like scientific scales. I think the biggest one he had was 164. Yeah. Yeah, lions. And that's hundreds. Like bears, you know, it's people get exaggerated weights. Um, yeah. You never run into somebody who's like, I saw a lion, little female. Mm-hmm. It was like, big old Tom. <laughs> that's right. Big old that's Tom right. come around the corner. Everyone's it's like, oh, huge. so you're good with lions, dude. Not only did you know it was big, you could you gendered that yeah, thing right. in the dark. <laughs> Big old time. No female quota up there, though, so you can take any cat, right? Yeah, we, you know, we don't really pick on the females too much, um, just because you know, we're guiding up there. We don't want to put ourselves yeah. out of business, so um, we try to take toms. Uh, there are hunters that kill females out of there, though. Do you guys tree females or pull the dogs off when it's a female? Uh, if there's young, we'll pull the dogs, but we tree them. Um, it's good for the dogs. We we, you know, we maybe kill twenty five percent of the cats that we tree. We have a lot of clients that just like to go out and take pictures and do that kind of stuff. And a lot of hunters, you know, want to come out and just see a cat or hunt for a week. And we might tree three or four before they find one that they want. It's probably good for the females that you tree them because it wises them up. Sure. Yeah, yeah. it wises them up. Um, They're less likely to climb a tree when they hear a dog bark and probably want to keep running. I don't know. 
I don't know about that. I think they might be more likely. I think they might. Really? Well, if you let them go. Oh, yeah. No, I got you. So maybe it doesn't wise them yeah. up. To like, the thing to do is climb a tree. Right. Well, <laughs> maybe, yeah. Just get up a tree and we're going to get your picture taken and going to get harassed for a little bit by the dogs. But Yeah, no, I, I, you're right. You're right. It doesn't wise them up. That's a good point. All right. Meat Eater Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.